are about to listen to is a podcast produced by Philoclea Ministries. Philoclea Ministries is offered to all free of charge. However, there are real and immediate needs associated with it. If you are a regular listener or enjoy any of the content produced by Philoclea Ministries, we humbly ask that you consider becoming a contributor. You can learn more about our funding needs at www.philocleaministries.org. Please note that Philoclea Ministries is not a 401c3 nonprofit organization and that contributions are not tax deductible. Supporting Philoclea Ministries is just like supporting your other favorite podcasters and content creators, and all proceeds pay the production bills, make it possible for us to pay our content manager, and provide a living stipend for Father David. God bless you and enjoy the podcast. Glory to Jesus Christ, glory forever. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Evergatinos. And we are coming very close to the end of the first volume. Sort of surprising. The last two and a half years have gone by very quickly. Uh, but uh, we're on page 367 tonight. We're picking up with a new hypothesis, 42. And uh, I was just mentioning how timely these hypotheses always are. And because they speak so much to, I think, what is personally applicable to our own experience and behavior. And uh, tonight's uh, title is that we should not gainsay or contradict anyone in, in a contentious manner, even regarding those things that are considered good, but should be subject to our neighbor and everything. And so in a way, it's prioritizing love and charity over one's own opinion, or even what is in reality good that one would seek to protect that which is precious and hard uh, one, which is trust and love that exists between individuals. And so often we can have a kind of harshness and we can become contentious when we are discussing things with others. And uh, as we've talked about many times, uh, this kind of behavior has seemed to grow as we uh, simultaneously have this greater freedom in our communication with people from all over the place, uh, but there also being this distance that allows us to sort of let go, I, I think, of the th things that would inhibit us in a good way, in the sense of making us be a little bit more careful on what we say and how, how we say it to others, with the desire not simply to win an argument or to prove what is good or true, but to maintain charity. And so we'll be given multiple examples here this evening and the particular importance of it, but also fruit that it bears. And so we're beginning with letter A from the life of St. Simeon, the stylite. And again, for those who just joined, we're on page 367, starting hypothesis 42. When St. Simeon was contemplating living on a pillar, an unprecedented form of asceticism, and reports about him had spread throughout the desert. The ascetics were astounded by this novel and strange undertaking, and they sent some representatives to him. So it, there's no uh, denying the fact that this was a novel thing and still is to this day. I think for most people, it seems like an oddity uh, that one would uh, build a pillar or find a pillar upon which to live to separate himself physically 
from others in order to maintain uh, a kind of silence from them, but also to engage the asceticism that such uh, living in such a place would uh, bring upon oneself. Uh, certainly having to rely upon others for food, being open to the elements constantly. Uh, there was a particular rigor to this. But at the time uh, that it first emerged, it brings the scrutiny of others who thought that perhaps Simeon was seeking to draw attention to himself in this behavior. And so they send representatives to him. They ordered them on the one hand to reprimand St. Simeon for this curious invention of his. And on the other hand, to instruct him to traverse the accustomed path of asceticism traced by the Holy Fathers and not to look down upon it since thereby multitudes of blessed ascetics had ascended to the heavens and found rest in the eternal tabernacles. And so their concern uh, is genuine, uh, that here was an ascetic who is embracing a novel practice, which could be a dangerous thing in and of itself, uh, that it separated himself perhaps from uh, the group in such a way, isolated him, where it could uh, become a danger for him. It could be a novelty, again, that would lead to, to pride, uh, that always in the spiritual life, the, the well-trod path is the, uh, the best path to take, one that has been proven through experience. And so they send out uh, representatives to sort of rebuke him for this kind of behavior, and uh, but as we know, sometimes this concern uh, on the surface can arise out of a kind of hypercriticalism and more than the desire to protect another, uh, simply being, uh, you know, critical of something that is new, uh, simply for the sake of being critical. And every age uh, requires and has, I think, its spiritual genius. Uh, that each age uh, is faced with its own particular problems and uh, that requires uh, the, well, that one listens to the Holy Spirit and the, allows the Spirit to guide us in ways perhaps that we have not walked before or to you know, bear witness to the faith uh, in ways that, uh, that haven't been done before. And... Uh, doesn't mean that we become, uh, you know, uh, undiscerning, I would say, in, in these behaviors, because they, we can fall into a kind of danger. But as we've talked about often, say, during the Counter-Reformation in particular, we see the emergence of new communities uh, precisely to deal with sort of the crisis within the life of the church, the corruption, sort of the waning of faith, but also the rise of the uh, of the Protestant, you know, the rise of Protestant ideas, and so the need to engage that reality in a more direct fashion that perhaps was possible through the typical monastic life that existed up to that time. John uh, comments kind of reminds me of the Jews who went out to see John the Baptist, asked who he was, though I don't think they were being critical. Uh, yes, it's true. And I think we see the same thing with, with Jesus, you know, that uh, individuals 
uh, you know, always listening, but with a critical, uh, uh, critical ear, and in particular with with Christ, that as they became more and more concerned with his teaching, looking for things where they could trip him up, uh, where he might fall into heresy, and that doesn't seem to be so much the case here. It does seem to be genuine concern, but we'll see how things develop. By then, fearing lest the idea of St. Simeon might be pleasing to God, while they viewed the matter in a human way, they also gave these instructions to the representatives. If they saw the man immediately departing of his own will and descending from his pillar in obedience to them, they should at once restrain him and order him to remain steadfast in his purpose. So here we, we see a kind of genuine desire that they, if they see within him something that is reflective of, of the obedience of Christ, a uh, kind of holiness being made manifest, that uh, this new form of asceticism uh, does not bear, uh, give rise to pride, but even a deeper obedience, then they are to leave him be, in fact, encourage him to continue to embrace it. For in this way, they would be convinced that Simeon's ascetic feat was divinely ordained, and they would not be afraid for the future, that such a beginning in asceticism would not have a good end. But if he took umbrage and would not tolerate listening even for a short while to their advice, but doggedly and heedlessly followed his own will, it would become quite obvious that he was far removed from humility, in which case, who would not say? that the evil one had suggested this idea to him. Therefore, if such were the case, the fathers of the desert instructed their representatives to bring him down from the pillar, even if by force, and even if against his will. And so the test here is one of, of obedience and humility. And this comes up again and again, and we've talked about it even in the life of someone like St. Philip Neri, that some of the uh, practices that he was engaging in, uh, he had learned, I think, in his youth in Florence from the Dominicans and how they were uh, engaging others about the faith. And so Philip begins, uh, even as a layman, to engage people in the streets about their faith, but then to initiate these small groups where even the lay people themselves were giving little talks upon the faith or upon the life of the saints, and, uh, and so he was uh, also in, in, uh, engaging them through things uh, like pilgrimages to the uh, seven major basilicas in Rome that had grown to like 3,000 people at one point. And uh, so his actions were gaining a lot of attention as well his, as his presence within the confessional for many hours a day, as well as preaching on a daily basis and frequent reception of Holy Communion uh, to those who would uh, come forward, uh, still under his guidance and judgment, but, but nonetheless, it was not something that was typical at that time. And there was a period where those who had become jealous or concerned about his actions went to the Pope and had him uh, silence. There was a period of time where Philip was not allowed to practice at all as, as a priest, and not only not to have the groups, but to, uh, to function within the confessional. 
until uh, it wasn't long after that that the Pope died. And then the newer Pope coming in uh, sort of released Philip from these restrictions. Uh, but uh, nonetheless, the saints, we see them often being put to the test in this regard. That what is, and we'll see this not only in this hypothesis, but in the next, the importance of obedience and humility uh, above all things. Again, these are the things that make us true confessors of the faith. When others can see in us, in all of its perfection, the virtues of Christ, especially the virtue that we see in the cross and in the gift of himself in the Holy Eucharist. And so if uh, Simeon's or Philip Neri's actions are to bear fruit, then what we should see in them would be the, these virtues above all things. And, uh, and so it is actually a good test that they are seeking to uh, expose Simeon to, uh, both for his well-being as well as for the well-being of others who might look to him. Uh, and, and so it's a discerning spirit. And I think something that's sort of needed in our day as well that we don't embrace every new thing that comes down the road simply because it seems interesting or entertaining, that there sh should be something that allows us to scrutinize it in a good way to see if it bears fruit that would be pleasing to God. After receiving this command, the envoys of the ascetics reached Simeon, the father of humility and obedience. But as soon as they saw him and greeted him, they were overcome by reverence for him and were unable to look at his face. However, on account of the order of the fathers who had sent them, and for the sake of the service to which they had been assigned, they related to him in detail what the fathers had told them. St. Simeon, truly meek and humble of heart, listened to the reprimand without offering any objection. Neither grew angry, nor argued, nor said anything at all, neither a little nor a lot. He immediately accepted the reproof, and with eyes lowered and with a kindly countenance, gave thanks to God and expressed his gratitude to the fathers for their concern for him. And without any hesitation, he undertook to descend from his pillar. The envoys at once restrained him and made known to him the mind of the fathers. They then besought him to remain steadfastly and unceasingly on the pillar and wishing him a good end that he might find sure rest from God for his constant labors, they departed. So they are put to the test, but put to the test, not he's put to the test, not in a contentious way that the ascetics together discuss it and they send these envoys uh, but uh, who treat him with respect and put forward uh, this kind of test to him, which then Simeon is able to embrace with full obedience and humility without uh, fussing about it or feeling that he's being impeded. And uh, this is often a hard thing for us to embrace in our life, especially when it does surround something that is good or that we do believe is from God. And it may be from God uh, in terms of the inspiration uh, that is given to an individual. But that does not mean that God is not going to seek to perfect 
our virtue in and through it, and even through the opposition that we might experience in pursuing the path that he has set us upon. And so we, we should not be surprised in the course of our life uh, when we set ourselves to some purpose and something that is even godly in its nature, virtuous in its nature, that we might bring down upon ourselves the scrutiny of others, that we would be questioned about it. And it can even come from those who are closest to us. And how, how often have I heard the story of those who undergo a kind of deeper conversion in their life and begin to pray on a daily basis and want to go to daily mass or something like adoration. And then suddenly their friends begin to ask them, you know, what, what's the matter with you? What, why are you doing this? Or even spouses at times will become uh, jealous, if you will, of this attention, this devotion, this willingness to direct time and attention to prayer, and even something like going to Mass. So even men and women of faith can find this interest in the Lord and interest in prayer to be something that is threatening. And so if there can be a whole host of reasons, not just to test our virtue uh, here as these ascetics sought to test Simeon, but uh, opposition can arise from for any number of reasons. And we have to have, I think, an, aware, an awareness of ourselves and how our ego can often enter in uh, to the things that we are doing, especially when uh, our hearts are tied to them in a very direct fashion. And so something like this, you know, Simeon takes up this ascetical practice feeling that he's being drawn by God to this greater rigor. And uh, I think we can envision any, any one of us perhaps digging in our heels when the people show up out of nowhere and begin to ask us questions about why we are doing it and the dangers perhaps that could arise of, out of it. And uh, perhaps we've uh, responded in, in uh you know, a kind of hostile way, of, even to something uh, that we are asked about of much less significance, uh, whether it's, you know, our opinion on or this, this or that matter. And so Simeon stands for us here, I think, as, you know, a powerful and positive example of both obedience and, hum and humility, uh, but also the elders and their representatives, I think, stand for us as an example, too, you know, of, we often hear people talk about fraternal correction and its importance, and uh, they approach Simeon in a particular way, you know, not with disrespect, and especially, I think, when they see in him, you know, that God is acting there, they, they are filled with reverence, even uh, gazing upon his countenance, and so they approach him uh, with a kind of delicacy. And so I think we found important examples on both sides of the story. Okay, letter B from the Gerontcon. Abba Poyman said that a man's will is a wall of brass between him and God and a rock that blocks us. If a man forsakes his will, he himself will say, by my God, shall I leap over a wall? But if man's egotism cooperates with his will, the man comes to grief. 
So a person who trusts in the will of God, who trusts in the providence of God, no matter what opposition or difficulty he might find in his life, is going to be able to trust in that providence in such a way that uh, he's not put off by the opposition, that he realizes again that God can be doing something far more important within his heart or that might must first take place before he can accomplish God's, God's will. And so they will not be put off by this. And I think that what's quoted here from the Psalm, by my God shall I leap over a wall, that no matter what stands between us and fulfilling that will, that we know that if this is God's desire, then he will give us the grace to accomplish it. But if we lack that trust in the providence of God, I think this is where we dig in our, our heels and we begin to fight for something. And very quickly, we become personally invested in it in such a way that we feel somebody uh, is in opposition to us, that they are taking something from us. And so we, we can co become combative and agitated in mind and heart. And this is where charity can begin to break down. Because if we truly trusted, if we really believed in the grace of God, and that we, there's nothing that is held back from us in him, especially in the, having received the gift of the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Eucharist, that whatever can be taken from us in this world is of no account. And so if we dig in our hills, then we are going to come to know grief uh, because others are going to become angry with us and we with them. And it creates this kind of vi vicious cycle a kind of will will to power will and uh uh this can go on for ages until somebody breaks and uh and so the path of true freedom that comes through obedience and humility and poverty uh is you know is something that's not rooted simply in those particular virtues like in poverty in and of itself uh, is not an end, but it's what, what it gives to us, that we do not cling to anything if we do not have anything that we feel that we have to fight over. And I think this is where somebody like Francis of Assisi experiences this great freedom and then so great joy in his life. Suddenly, he realizes that what is most important is his dignity and identity in Christ. And no matter what happens to him or what poverty or suffering experiences in this life, that no one can take that joy, that joy and that peace of the kingdom from him. And I think the, the greater warning should come to all of us who are religious people, because when someone thinks that what they are doing is of God, then they can also become the most willful of individuals, because if they feel that God has sort of sanctioned them, or especially cho has chosen them for this particular ministry or task, then they can feel that they have this right that anyone who confronts them is uh, kind of an enemy of God. And so they can tr treat them exactly like that. And we see our Lord being treated like that 
certainly within the Gospels, you know, that he did become in the eyes of many of the people, and especially the religious leaders, an enemy of God, a heretic, uh, one who was ex first excommunicated from, from the synagogues, but ultimately put to death, that he became a threat on all these different levels. So our egos might be religious in their character, but they can still be as problematic for us, and maybe even more so. An elder said that quarreling delivers a man to anger. Anger delivers him to blindness, and blindness impels him to perpetrate every evil. So our anger steals something very uh, important from us, the capacity to discern what is true. And so we become blind on this deepest of levels, we act on that anger, and then it, it, it destroys us and uh, others altogether. And uh, St. James speaks about this in his letter. The anger of man does not bear fruit acceptable to God. And it's, that's one scripture verse that we often forget very quickly or neglect to take hold of uh, because it is so challenging. You know, anger, as we've talked about, is an emotion and a very powerful one, and it often does reveal a certain truth to us, can reveal a certain truth to us, especially injustice. And so we should, that should be our response, but it needs to be put to the test. And if we find it taking over and agitating the heart and breaking down charity, then we really have to take a hard look at ourselves and seek counsel. Number three, when Abba Amonis was asked what the straight and narrow way was, he said in reply, the straight and narrow way is to do violence to one's thoughts and to cut off one's own will for God's sake. This is the meaning of the words, behold, we have forsaken all and followed thee. So jarring, certainly, again, to modern sensibilities, the idea of letting go of one's own will. And I think the first notion that comes to mind is that we then become doormats for others in the world and that we are going to suffer greatly. And so we see the meekness that is behind this is actually a sign of weakness. That uh, if we have no will, it means that we lack a kind of strength and character, uh, which is not what Christ is talking about, nor the fathers. That this kind of meekness is a great strength and perhaps uh, you know, one that we often lack because it, it allows our anger to be something that is tempered by love and sh shaped by love. So if even if anger arises out of injustice, uh, then love is always still to come and to shape our response uh, to the other so that we don't become blind uh, to their dignity and identity in Christ, even if they might be causing us 
suffering and difficulty. And uh, this is where I, you know, I always think, again, the fathers seem to be personally applicable and speak to us uh, as if they're speaking in our own times, uh, precisely simply because they are speaking of the common human experience, that uh, it is often our tendency uh, to feel that anger. And uh, once that ball gets rolling, that psychological ball gets rolling, it becomes very difficult to slow things down. And as with so many things on an emotional level, we will have a tendency to nurse it, to nurture it before we begin uh, to examine whether or not it uh, is, is, is something that is righteous or something that we need to address in a, a direct fashion, or, or if it's rooted in the ego. Uh, Alexander writes, how does anger fit in with resentment? Uh, uh, I, hand in glove, I would, I would think uh, that it often, I would say that's one, one of the fruits of, of anger would be resentment, that we see others as an obstacle, not only to the things that we pursue, but to our very happiness as human beings. And I think this is where our, our trust in the grace of God, our trust in his providence does free us. When we understand that we have everything in Christ and that there is nothing that can take us out of his hands and that we get to a point uh, like St. Paul that in comparison to the love of Christ, everything in this world seems as rubbish, then we lose that capacity for resentment, that our first movement of mind and heart is to seek to understand why somebody might be engaging us in this particular way, rather than moving to the defensive position. And which I think is tied to the, uh, then to resentment that, uh, you know, we put up this wall uh, and we can keep another person at arm's length, uh, you know, simply even through our memory of past ill will shown to us or of things said to us or done to us uh, so that we don't have to be vulnerable. Uh, whereas if, again, we know that we have all things in Christ, then we not only lose this capacity for resentment, but we maintain the capacity to be vulnerable in love, to show love even to those who are angry with us or contentious uh, with us. And, I, you know, I don't want to be cavalier about this. I think this is no small virtue. Uh, and something that does not emerge uh, without great ascetic practice and great prayer and setting aside our will in small things in life. Uh, I think our minds immediately run to the ways that we've been wounded and been traumatized by, by others. And it's harder for us to step back and think, okay, how would one seek to form the mind and the heart and, and do that simply not by one's own efforts, but by immersing oneself in Christ and in his love. Because what we're being called to here is a divine love and uh, divine virtue, not simply the, even the perfection, again, of natural virtue, 
that we are called even to love our enemies, even to the point where Christ says, do not resist one who is evil. I've always been surprised when that gospel is read that people just don't stand up and walk out of church uh, because it sort of takes, it comes right at the end of the Beatitudes or right after the Beatitudes. And you think he's, he already has drawn us up to the edge of absurdity. And then he makes us jump off the ledge when he says, do not resist one who is evil. And, uh, and so if we've already lost uh, our capacity for discernment, as was said in the previous uh, saying, if we've already become blind because of our anger, it's even going to become more difficult when we find enemies who are seeking to destroy us and uh, where there is a real malice directed towards us. Where, where are we responding from at that point? And we can't believe for a moment that it's by natural virtue or by strength of will, or even by the understanding of our intellect, our understanding of what Christ taught, that we are going to be able to do that. It's only by having let go of our own will so that the will of Christ becomes our own, that his virtue becomes our virtue, his strength becomes our strength. We're no longer acting simply out of our out of our own uh, strength or or by our own powers of or our own wisdom at that point. We are acting in union and communion with Christ. And again, I think this is where and uh, why we see the Eastern Fathers stress the end goal of the ascetic life. It's not a kind of moral perfection, but rather deification. It is to become God by virtue of grace, by participation, in order to love as God loves. And I think this becomes the stumbling block for uh, most Christians throughout the course of their life, because I think we all sort of draw that line in the sand. And even if the conditions that we set, set aren't on the surface of our conscious, consciousness, that when we face something like the malice of others, uh, we will all eventually say, I'm done. I'm out of here. Forget it. You know, and uh, it's a hard thing. I mean, I think this is where a real discernment that is needed and when we go back a couple of hypotheses, if we remember, uh, one would only leave one's place of residence you know, for the monks where there was envy, where there was uh, a kind of malice about the pursuit of Christ and tied to that pursuit of holiness that becomes an obstacle. And that's only discerned again in the context of one's work with one spiritual elder and after years of trying to understand what is going on there. You know, is it God seeking to perfect us in virtue or is there a kind of malice here that is contrary to the will of God and is something that God is using even to direct us along another path. But I think we can just by reading these few sayings, we can understand that comes to us not in an easy way and certainly does not come to us simply through self 
reflection. Usually self-analysis is no analysis because there's going to be, you know, we're all, we're going to have our blind spots and our hard spots. And, you know, we're just, we're not going to be able to deal with them on our own. You know, our powers of rationalization are so great that I, I think the moment we come up against something, you know, we're going to want to put, put ourselves in a position where we do not have to suffer the hands of others or, or just the circumstances of life. And so in saying this, I know I'm going on about this in a, uh, in a long-winded way, but in saying this, uh, I don't want people to think that, you know, in the face of physical abuse uh, and in the face of trauma or in the face of real malice that one should simply subject that oneself to that in an undiscerning fashion. Uh, I've even had, you know, talks with, you know, uh, sec uh, priest secretaries at times where they've heard, you know, that the priest told a woman who was being abused, well, you should stay in, in the marriage. It's for better or for worse, you know, and, you know, sort of uh, discounting the fact that the woman is being abused and has been abused for years, you know, as if there's some virtue in that. And, uh, and so I don't want us to go there, but I don't want us also to lose sight of the fact that we are called to be transformed by the grace of God and to be transfigured by that grace so that we become Christ for one another. And that, again, we are being called to something that is greater than mere natural virtue. And so we are going to have to, you know, be willing to allow our judgment to be put to the test. Okay, any comments before we move on? Okay. Number four, Abba John related that Abba Anub and Abba Poyman and five others who were brothers in the flesh had at first lived together in Skidus. Then after Skidus was devastated by the Maziks, for the first time they departed from there and went to a place called Teremuthin, where there was a pagan temple. They entered this temple where they stayed for a short time until they could decide where to go. Abba Anub, who was the senior among them, said to Abba Poyman, do not, um, I'm sorry, do me a favor, you and your brothers, and let each of us live by himself, and let us not have any contact with the other this whole week. Let us do as you, as you wish, replied Abba Poyman, and this is what they did. So interesting, they sort of take up residence in this pagan temple, having been driven uh, from their skeet. Uh, by invaders, and but he wants them to enter into this uh, place with a particular mindset uh, to be putting themselves to the test, in particular to discern whether or not they truly want to live the common life and then understand what it is going to entail for them. Uh, iPhone 61, we are on page 370. In that place, there was a stone statue, and every morning Abba Anub would throw stones at its face. 
Every evening, he would say to it, forgive me. He did this for the entire week. On Saturday, they met together, and Abba Poiman said to Abba Nu, this whole week, Abba, I saw you throwing stones at the face of the statue and making a prostration to it afterwards. Tell me then, is this the way a believer acts? The elder answered, I did this for your sake. For when you saw me throwing stones at the face of the statue, did it talk to me or get angry? No, replied Abba Poiman. The elder went on again. When I made a prostration to it, was it moved or did it say, I will not forgive you? No, Abba Poiman responded. Abba Nanub concluded, well then, if you want us to remain with each other, let us become like this statue which is not moved, whether it is insulted or glorified. But if you do not wish this to be so, look, there are four doorways in this temple. Let each of you go wheresoever he wants. And when the brothers heard this, they threw themselves to the ground, saying to him, we will do as you wish, Father, and we'll listen to what you tell us. Abba Poiman remarks, we remained with each other for a whole, the whole of our time, working according to the instructions which the elder gave us. He made one of us a steward, and we ate whatever he set before us. It was unthinkable for any of us to say, bring us something else, or we want to eat this. And we passed our whole time in quietness and peace. So, interesting image that of the common life, that if, if they are to live together in charity, but if they are also to seek the higher goals of the monastic life, this hesychasm, inner stillness and peace, then they are to set aside that kind of sensitivity or touch, touchiness of heart that uh, St. John Climacus talks about. And so imitate the statue. Uh, it's a great image, you know, on one hand, throwing stones at it, and then the next moment, bowing down and asking for forgiveness and seeing that, you know, the statue doesn't respond to either. And so there is to be this kind of freedom he wants them to have if and understand the kind of test that they are going to undergo in regards to their own will, if they are going to uh, achieve the goal uh, for which they, to which they set themselves, which is this internal stillness. And so if you enter into the common life, especially if you enter into the monastic life with this kind of touchiness and oversensitivity of heart, you know, the first time somebody says something, you know, harsh to you or looks at you cross-eyed, then you're, you're going to be, you know, bent out, out of shape. And if you remember the elder that we read from last week, where the monk keeps coming to him and says, I, I can't live the common life. Let me go live a life of solitude. And he goes and lives a life of solitude and says, I can't take this. Let me come back. And he's rebuked by the elder and then question, how long have you been living the monastic life? And he says, seven years, eight years. And the elder says, well, I've been at this for 70 years and I've never experienced a day of peace in my entire life here. So why did you become a monk at all? And uh, I thought that was a very powerful story because it's saying, you know, we don't, one doesn't enter into the monastic life 
uh, running away from the world, nor does one run away from the world by entering the life of the solitude. They each have their own cross and one has one's own demons to deal with that are going to manifest themselves in one way or another. And, but the same is true for us as Christians uh, as a whole, you know, in our day-to-day -day life, uh, we are going to face things that put us to the test. And inevitably, uh, our, our patience is going to be tried. Somebody's going to say something to us, uh, not realizing even their insensitivity. And uh, we don't want to be bursting into tears every time that takes place. Uh, we want to be able to, again, be able to step back from it and look at what's going on in our own hearts and say, okay, what's that sensitivity rooted in? Uh, but also be able to look at the other and uh, seek to understand what might be giving rise to that anger and why is it being directed toward, towards me? I think the harder thing to do is actually uh, to look at ourselves and ask, okay, what in my life might trigger this kind of response from me, this touchiness of, of heart? And uh, having undergone analysis, it's sort of funny, the things that uh, emerge over the course of time. Uh, I, I think I mentioned that I was seven and a half years on the couch for four days a week. And so just about every thought imaginable comes to mind. Uh, and you have to talk about it. It's not like you go on the couch to keep things hidden from the analyst. It's, it would be like hiding your thoughts from your elder uh, spiritually. And uh, so the things that come to mind, uh, that some, some, sometimes they get directed at, at the analyst are sort of embarrassing. You know, whether it's a kind of anger or hostility or feeling ignored or neglected. Uh, I think I've mentioned here once before that I had to tell my analyst that, you know, I experience you as, you know, something like that mother in the Reese's monkey experiment, you know, like a cold, uh, cold, you know, harsh mother and uh, that gives no warmth or nourishment. And, uh, and you could think about, you know, the analyst position, you know, they're behind you. They don't offer much in terms of counsel. That's not their purpose, but it triggers and can trigger a lot for us. And so there are so many things, uh, let me put it this way, uh, like counter-transference uh, is ubiquitous, as is transference. Like we, we will respond to individuals in our lives and project certain things onto them because of experiences that we have and that there's something similar about their behavior uh, uh, to someone that we have known very well or who has caused us harm. And so seeing them, hearing their voice or uh, the things that they say can trigger some pretty strong feelings within us. And that that response, you know, our, our counter transference to people, uh, like the analyst, for example, can develop these feelings about the analysand, the one who's on the couch, 
they can all of a sudden feel great anger or irritated or bored or get sleepy in their in their chair and you hear them drop their pen because they've fallen asleep you know and you know it's because they're having they're picking up on your what's going on with you emotionally and so it can often be this profound cue to what's going on in the heart of the annals and and so we're in this in our interactions with others there can be these powerful this this powerful dynamic that exists that is often on an unconscious level um, and more often than not and i think what we find in the desert fathers is you know the first depth psychologists and in many ways, I think they are the greatest of depth psychologists. And I, I think pick up things with far and for far greater subtlety than I found in any contemporary analytic works, not to negate the value of them. There, there's you know beautiful writers, and uh, I think it's brought a lot to the field of psychology. But when you enter into the readings of the fathers, you begin to see gee, they saw all of this and they saw it in, in an even deeper way. And I think it's because they immersed themselves almost onto that analytic couch permanently. You know, they entered into the desert. And so that blank screen that one has on the analytic couch where you project what's going on internally uh, because you can't project it onto the ana analyst because you don't see them. The, these desert monks were in that position constantly. And so they could see these feelings of anger or, or lust or hatred or resentment arise even when no one is around. And so th they became very conscious of these subtle movements on an emotional level as well as spiritual, how the evil one can pick up on the vulnerabilities that we have, the habits of mind and behavior, and draw us into temptation through it. Wow, I was that was yammering on there for a long time. Sorry about that. Ashley uh, says, this might be a leap in relation to this analogy with the stone statue, but I have been having conversations about filial confidence in God. Isaiah 50 says, the Lord God is my help, therefore I'm not disgraced. Therefore, I've set my face like flint, knowing that I shall not be put to shame. Beautiful. I was trying to think of that from the Old Testament, so I'm grateful that you, you picked up on it. If the monks in this passage agree to both enter into this life, combating their lower faculties, with, which suggests doing battle against disordered sensibilities, then it also relates to the grace of an inflexible resolve that no matter what happens to them, always passing away compared to eternal glory in Christ. They have set their faces like flint against all struggles that may come. I think the goal then is to enter into ourselves and do battle so as to become docile and not react in the extremes to repose ourselves like children in the arms of the Heavenly Father. Absolutely, beautifully put. And, you know, docile, I think even if I were to add only one thing, docile in the sense of being teachable, able to see in these things that emerge from us uh, a truth that does not humiliate us, 
but allows us to make our way through them, the sensitivities that we have, in order that we may, might stay up along that path toward Christ and stay along the path of charity towards others, and not to react, as you said, in the extremes, that we are able to engage others simply from that position of, of love, of understanding, and not lose sight of that fundamental dignity uh, that discernment allows us to hold on to, so that even if they are engaging us, for whatever reason, in a hostile fashion, we are able, as you say, to remain children of God. And again, you know, the standard for us in this, the example is Christ himself. You know, how many times do they want to take him and throw him off of an edge of a cliff and how often were they fickle with him you know praising him one day and the next day you know, rejecting him and yet he was able you know to see things with a kind of clarity engage them in the way that they needed to be engaged including those who were closest to him as own apostles rachel writes you can't project it on to christ the all innocent and perfect one uh except i agree with that except uh i think we do that and christ in with arms wide open on the cross embraces it and is able to receive it and yet not give it back in the way that we often give it back to others you know how we've often talked about sometimes if somebody you know, insults us, we'll give it back double barrels. Well, you say that to me, boom, boom. And we'll sort of dig up something about their character that is even more humiliating and to show them why they're wrong. And, uh, uh, but Christ, I think what is shown to us on the cross is that he's taken all of that, our sin, the ugliness of that sin, the uh, pain and the agony, the anguish that that uh, inflicts upon others, but also that uh, inflicts upon ourselves as we engage in it. He's taken it upon himself in order that we might be free of it, that we might humbly acknowledge it, and in the humble acknowledgement of it, be raised up to participate in his life. So now there is no obstacle for our participating uh, in the divine life, even our sin, because we always know that there is this compassionate God that awaits us in repentance to receive us as we turn back to him. So it will always be that loving father as the, the father in the story of the prodigal son. Because I, I think there are those times in our life where there's so many things do happen to us that we do project our frustration and our anger out on to God. You know, why do you let this happen to me or to one that I love or to my child, you know, that arise out of this deep place of pain? And Christ is able to contain that and not only contain it, uh, but uh, to transform it into something that draws us closer to God, that doesn't have to draw us into an endless cycle of, of darkness and despair and conflict, even the deepest wounds that we bear. 
And I think it's here too that we begin to see the real meaning again of the word psychotherapy. It's healing of soul. It's not healing of mind or emotion. It's the healing of the, the whole self. And in fact, the deepest of, re, uh, of regions of who we are as human beings. I was talking with somebody earlier this week uh, about a, a recent quote I heard from a modern elder saying that what we see of the saints is the least of the truth about them that we do not see all the things, no matter how beautiful their life is or the miraculous things that they do, that it is the least of what God has done in them and is doing in them at every moment. That there is such a profound love and transformation there and grace that it is beyond our comprehension. And it's important not only that we see that about the saints, but I think that we see that in us as well. It can feel like we are slogging along and even failing miserably and that our hearts have grown, you know, as hard as stone and that prayer has become impossible to us. But God in those moments can actually be teaching us what it is to pray and he might be healing us on the deepest level, precisely at the moment when we are feeling that our hearts are the hardest and most unloving. Boy, if we could believe that even for a day, it would be transformative. John writes, a bit ironic that flint produces a spark when struck by steel or something similar. However, docility implies that this spark is not anger, but charity. Right, it's, it strikes a blaze, but the, the fire of love that consumes that which is, is sinful or what becomes an impediment. It burns away all dross from us rather than striking out at the others at others so rather than like you remember the story of the apostles where they want fire to you know shall we bid fire come down and consume the samaritans you know so rather than directing it at others we allow that fire of god's spirit to be ignited within us and to burn away everything that prevents us from experiencing the fullness of that love Oh, you know, how I've come to set fire upon the earth, and oh, how I wish it was already burning. If you remember Christ saying that, that there was a desire that he might let loose this love upon the cross, and that it might catch the world on fire, but with something that would be purifying. Uh, a commenter says here, guilty of all these that you mentioned, I'm grateful. Yeah, I think we're all guilty of them and beyond counting. And so there is uh, something that's deeply humiliating, not humiliating, humbling in, in reading the fathers. You know, I think it becomes impossible to have, to hold on very long to any illusion of, you know, being the source of our own virtue. Okay. Where did I leave off here? Number five. Abba Alonius said, if I had not destroyed my whole self, I would not have been able to rebuild myself. That is, if I had not forsaken everything deriving from my own will that appeared good to me, I would not have been able to acquire the virtues. Wow. 
So again, it puts into perspective to us this what dying to self and dying to sin and living for Christ means for us. That if he was not willing to set aside that uh, will that is rooted in an ego touched by sin, and to set it aside in such a radical way, he would never have come to know the life of virtue and true freedom in Christ. So far from knowing freedom, he would have continued to know, you know, the bondage to sin and how that prevents us from loving and giving ourselves in love, but also receiving love from others. And so we don't do a very good job, I think, in speaking about the praxis of Christian life, uh, you know, what it means to live this. Because I, I think when we preach the gospel, and it's not arising out of a place of understanding uh, like these men from experience, then it can take on subtle distortions of self-hatred, self-contempt, uh, a hopelessness. You know, because if we, we gaze upon it without seeing the, the depth of the struggle of these monks, and without hearing, say, exam for example, last week, John Climacus saying about uh, insen uh, insensibility, that, you know, that he found it really sort of hard to talk about this because, but forces himself to do so because it was something that he struggled with himself mightily. And if we don't see that, uh, then, you know, what is put forward to us uh, in the gospel can seem inhumane rather than holding out to us the promise of life, of love, of freedom, of a participation in the peace of the kingdom, you know, an invincible kind of peace and joy. And I, I don't think that's preached from the pulpit or taught in the, you know, in the confessional or in spiritual direction. Again, we are often very fear-driven rather than seeing what God has done for us in love and what the impediments that he's removed and the things he's taken upon himself in order that we might know true freedom and healing. And so I've said it before and I'll say it again. Uh, I have it pinned to all my social media sites. The, a little quote from Irene Hasher, a Jesuit, that uh, every renewal within the life of the church begins with the Desert Fathers. And I think we understand in reading what we have been, the Evergetinos and John Climacus, the Light of Divine Ascent, why that's true. Because it allows us to enter into the gospel in this incredibly deep way, or allow it to penetrate our hearts in a way that it typically doesn't, in a way that it can be transformative. And that's, that's what we need, something that is going to transform our hearts, our individual hearts, not looking out there what programs we can install as to, you know, these big things, but simply within. 
You know, if it's the love of Christ that compels us and dwells within our hearts, that's where miracles begin to take place. Okay, any final comments or questions before we end? That brings us to 8.30, believe it or not. Okay, very good. So a lot to contemplate here. We've only just begun this hypothesis, so a lot more to go here. So be patient with them, okay? And when we close, as always, with our Father, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks be to God. Thank you all.